Welcome to Four Questions Four, the official podcast of Osgood Hall Law School, presenting great conversations about legal education, the profession, and the law. Today, Priyanka Vital, counsel at Greenpeace and an adjunct professor at Osgood, will have four questions for Osgood professor Dana Scott on the topic of environmental racism. Professor Dana Scott is an associate professor at Osgood and York's research chair in environmental law and justice in the green economy. She is cross-appointed with York's Faculty of Environmental Studies and Urban Change. Professor Scott is a co-director of Osgood's Environmental Justice and Sustainability Clinic and a co-coordinator of the joint MES-JD program. Her research interests are primarily in the areas of environmental law and justice, resource extraction, indigenous law and jurisdiction, gender and environmental health, toxics regulation and pollution. She has written extensively on these subjects and prepared numerous reports on environmental issues for government and other organizations. Welcome Dana, let's get started with question one. What is environmental racism and where do you see it occurring? Thank you, Priyanka. Um, Environmental racism is the higher burdens of environmental harms that are experienced by people of color and indigenous people. So we see it all around us, really. Um, We see it in the disparities in environmental quality between communities that have higher proportions of racialized people and other communities. And we see it between indigenous and non-indigenous communities all across Canada. So whether you have access to clean air to breathe or safe water to drink in Canada, mostly depends on where you live. And while we might like to think this is about geography, what the research shows is actually about racism and discrimination. So the racist outcomes, which are these environmental disparities, have structural underpinnings. That means that the racism is baked right into the legal architecture of a number of different regulatory regimes. It's part of environmental law. So it doesn't matter if people working within those systems carry racist attitudes or not, unless we completely change the framework for the rules, those frameworks will continue to produce the same racist outcomes. Uh, So there's a whole bunch of places we can see the patterns of environmental racism across the country. Uh, One of the most obvious places is in relation to major industrial hotspots, so Sarnia and Hamilton. And here you can see that the pollution follows a distinct pattern of having the worst impacts on the low income racialized people in Hamilton's downtown core and on indigenous peoples in Amjanong First Nation, which is downwind of Sarnia's Chemical Valley. We see it also in the recent evacuation of Nishtantika First Nation in Ontario's far north, uh, where it's very obvious that people living on reserve do not have access to basic human right of clean drinking water. We can see the patterns uh, in the locations of landfills in proximity to historic black communities in Nova Scotia. And this has been well documented in Ingrid Waldron's uh, recent book, There's Something in the Water. And there, when you look really closely, you can see that even for uh, when you control for class or socioeconomic status, the black communities face a higher pollution burden 
than comparable non-Black communities also in Nova Scotia. Uh, here in Toronto, you can think about the bus routes and the air pollution that those buses produce, creating lifelong health burdens for the kids that grow up in those neighborhoods uh, versus other communities that might get streetcars or subways. And finally, I think we need to think about the way the pandemic is exacerbating many of these same issues. So um, we see with COVID-19 a higher death toll for those with an underlying respiratory illness and perhaps from a lifetime of breathing uh, heavy air pollution, as an example. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're seeing this more insidious effects during COVID-19 and the pandemic as well. Mm -hmm. um, and just to mention a couple of other examples, I know the more uh, very obvious and direct link is with the oil sands in Alberta and the link to the Fort Chippewa Nation um, and the high rates of cancer. Um, as well as where we place things, our urban planning and, and uh, municipal planning, where we put our landfills, they're often close to vul more vulnerable communities, and that affects the groundwater and drinking water as well. Um, so this brings me to question number two. How do systemic conditions and the political climate perpetuate environmental racism in Canadian society? Great. Yeah, thanks. So I think the basic structure of environmental regulation is perpetuating the problem. So we can just look at the air pollution example to start. And there we know that even the Ministry of Environment in Ontario acknowledges that the air pollution law is failing. Um, it basically can't take account for uh, pollution hotspots or these so-called saturated air sheds where many polluting facilities are clustered together. So the basic structure of how we regulate air pollution is not working for those uh, pollution clusters. But then on top of that, there's also the question of administrative discretion and enforcement resources. So there's a lot of scope within our air pollution law for ministry officials to grant exemptions to the rules. And what happens is over time, the way that regulators and inspectors in the ministry come to identify with the challenges of the industry in terms of what's feasible, what's reasonable. Uh, over time, they start to really identify with those problems, whereas they never really seem to come to identify with the struggles or the people's losses in Amgenong with their health problems, uncertainties and worries over cancer and asthma and miscarriages. They don't seem to come to identify with what it would be like to live in that state of anticipation of the next pollution incident or the spill or the flare. So that, that discretion that's built into the regulatory regime becomes a problem. Um, it's also true that the conditions under which those laws can be challenged is a structural problem. And this is one actually that law students often uh, are really disappointed about when they come to understand it. Um, you know, litigation systematically favors corporations and it disadvantages residents. So there, we can think about the example of the uh, Chemical Valley Charter Challenge. And this was brought uh, a few years ago now, but there was so much excitement and enthusiasm. This was gonna be the first attempt to establish the right to a healthy environment in Canada. You know, Ecojustice was bringing the case on behalf of two residents of Amgenong First Nation that have been affected by chronic air pollution. Um, you know, we had what was one of the most glaring and obvious examples of environmental racism in the country. 
we were bringing it forward with you know this formula, uh, kind of an innovative formula of combining section seven and section 15 of the charter. So that's our rights to security of the person and our rights to equality. Um, but ultimately that lawsuit failed and it was a huge disappointment. Um, and it was a reminder that, you know, uh, financial resources, power dynamics, legal technicalities, all of those things come into play and they systematically favor the big companies and the repeat players, the parties with the deep pockets, uh, the parties that can hire the experts that are seen as neutral and not biased. Whereas the experts that um, were working with the community were seen as somehow activist or not credible. And all of these assumptions are built into the legal system and all of them are serving over time to perpetuate environmental racism. And it does, I'm, I'm wondering if you agree that a lot of these tools are being still taken away, even though there are only a few remaining. Seems like a charter challenge is already a far cry, but there's nothing in terms of municipal law tools or provincial tools or any sort of local legal tools that could help these communities. For sure, I agree with that. And it, you know, it has been one of the hard things to come to terms with over the past few years that um, environmental law is being dismantled. Uh, even, you know, the, as you say, the few tools that we have are, do seem like they're being taken away in many cases. And, you know, I, I think that communities become fully aware of the lack of power they have and the impacts that, that these um, uh, impacts are having on their community. Um, this raises the third question, question three, what have been the responses from racialized and marginalized communities perhaps outside of the legal system that allows them to raise the alarm on these issues? Yeah, well, people are always resisting. And that's, you know, that's the part that can give us some optimism. So in Amdenong, there's a long history now of activism against the chronic pollution. Um, residents there lead toxic tours. They have conducted bucket brigades uh, to generate their own data. They speak at rallies. As I said, they've tried various lawsuits and different kinds of legal challenges. You know, and they continue to find the energy to participate in these law reform initiatives and committees. Um, with respect to the Boil Water Advisories, uh, I was impressed to see yesterday Saul Mamakwa, who's the MPP for Kiwetanong uh, in Ontario's far north, was uh, refused to stand uh, for the national anthem in the provincial legislature yesterday, a move he said was taken in solidarity with communities and his riding that continue to struggle under boil water advisories. So we, we see this resistance uh, almost everywhere we look that we see environmental racism. Um, the difficulty is that, you know, these movements have discrete wins and they have are making incremental gains, um, but we don't see meaningful improvement uh, in air quality, for example, in Sarnia or in Hamilton. Uh, related to those resistance actions. Similarly, the struggle for clean water has been going on so long. Nishtantika's Boil Water Advisory is the longest running in the country at 26 years. And this is the second time they've had to declare a state of emergency 
just in this one calendar year. So I'm not saying that to diminish the significance of the resistance efforts, but just to underscore how entrenched those regimes are that they're trying to challenge, right? And so they need a broader movement of uh, support. They need more of us to step up, to call out the environmental racism and to work towards changing those regimes. Yeah, I'm wondering if we had a boil water advisory in a city like Toronto, or even just a neighborhood in Toronto, or taking a white wealthy neighborhood like Rosedale, you know, if that happened, what kind of alarm would there be? And what kind of response would we have if we saw these in um, wealthier white communities? I'm wondering if the response would be absolutely um, different. Would we see a fast uh, change? Would we see funding? Would we see the prime minister talk about it? It seems like these issues are quite alarming, but we don't hear about them enough. I absolutely, I agree with you. And, you know, just thinking about the evacuation in Nishtantika made me realize, um, you know, there was, there's so much that came along with that. People kind of just picked up immediately and flew to Thunder Bay, you know, with their kids and they had to drop everything. So, you know, a couple of days passed and people start to realize, oh, well, what are we going to do about school? Uh, right. And and you think about all of the attention that was placed around kids in Toronto and whether school was going to happen for them during the pandemic and what would happen if they had to miss it or what what would happen if they can't get enough French instruction, for example. Um, and then you think about these kids that are just in a hotel in Thunder Bay waiting for someone to fix their water water system. It is very frustrating when you see our prime minister, for example, take a knee at a protest and then hand out money for oil and gas subsidies, as opposed to giving the money to the communities that are actually living on the edge and things that he can actually do to resolve environmental racism or racism in general. Um, so Dana, we've come to our final question. Question four, what are some initiatives people can get behind if they want to begin tackling the problem? Okay, great question. So I think this is actually a crucial time um, it might seem that, you know, the pandemic is a time at which we have to kind of take a step back and, and focus, let the governments focus on, on economy. Uh, but I actually think that's the wrong move, right? That we're, we're looking now to spend, uh, spend money on infrastructure and on different um, kinds of public focused um, solutions that are durable and sustainable. So I think it's a good time to try and make back some of these uh, gains. So there was a, recently a report done by the UN Special Rapporteur on Human Rights and Toxics uh, based on a, a Canada, a country report on Canada, and it was released in September. And that report confirms what we've been talking about all morning. Uh, indigenous, racialized, and other marginalized communities in Canada are exposed to disproportionate adverse health effects from pollution. But here's what's interesting. The report makes several recommendations, and three of them are consistent with proposed legislation that's currently being considered at the federal level. So one of those is to recognize the right to a healthy environment. This is something that was recommended by the House of Commons uh, Committee in 2017 when the Canadian Environmental Protection Act was under review. It's a right that's recognized in 150 countries uh, where it's proven to provide better environmental outcomes for residents. 
And the Trudeau government thus far has declined to recognize the right to a healthy environment. But there was some indication in the recent throne speech that the government is hoping to modernize the Canadian Environmental Protection Act uh, in this current parliament. And so perhaps with a you know, concerted effort, application of pressure, uh, we might be able to get the recognition of environmental rights as part of that review. Secondly, um, we need implementation of the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, and we need it to be incorporated into Canadian law in a meaningful way. And that means uh, recognition that communities have the right to provide or withhold their FPIC, their Free Prior and Informed Consent, for any resource projects on Indigenous land. Trudeau has committed to this again, also in the throne speech, uh, as he did during the 2015 election, um, but it needs to have teeth. So if FPIC is not guaranteed, uh, then Indigenous peoples will continue to be burdened by dirty extractive projects that they don't want, uh, which is a manifestation of environmental racism and is a stain on Canada. The third piece of uh, proposed legislation is Bill C-230, which calls for the development of a strategy to redress environmental racism. This is being brought forward by Liberal MP Lenore Zan um, and is expected to proceed to second reading later this fall. So this bill could establish an environmental justice framework, uh, which has been recommended in the UN report, and which could ideally include something like the Executive Order on Environmental Justice in the US, which included a prohibition against citing any polluting facility in communities that were already bearing more than their fair share of pollution. So that would be a new uh, legal framework for Canada. Um, all of these I think are, are possible in the next few months and they have a, you know, the possibility to sort of break down uh, the architecture that's holding up environmental racism in the country. And just to follow up on that, Bill, does uh, that mean that it could have impacts on local planning and uh, decisions such as zoning um, or where projects are placed? Well, I would hope so. Uh, that kind of text is not currently in the bill, um, but I'm just mentioning the way that um, that kind of environmental justice framework that could be crafted to take account of the sort of current burdens that communities are facing and to put some kind of legal barrier there towards further exacerbating that. That's the kind of thing I think we should be fighting for to get into those, those legal structures. Okay, um, and just to follow up to that is how can people support a bill like this, for example? Well, you just have to uh, get out there and get involved. I think we have to pay attention to what's happening on the parliamentary agenda and make sure we're um, mobilizing to, to really let our MPs know that we want to see this legislation come into effect. Okay. And get out in the streets too. <laughs> True, safely with a mask on. Right. <laughs> it can be done. All right. Thank you so much, Dana. Thanks, Priyanka. You've been listening to Four Questions Four by Osgood Hall Law School. We hope you'll join us again next time.